Hey there. My name's Tim. Welcome to The Table, the podcast edition. The Table is a community that exists to make room to explore what we believe. What you're about to hear is an edited version of something that we call the talkie bit. We're sharing it with the hope that it can be a positive catalyst and encouragement to you in your own explorations. In our experience, exploring what we believe can sometimes be hard work, and we don't think anybody should have to do that alone. We're able to offer this because of the generous support of donors both within and beyond a local community. If you want to contribute to keeping it going, you can find information about how to do that at thetablewinnipeg.com. Thanks for dropping by. Welcome to the Talkie Bit. Uh, we've had a bit of a break from this particular format, and we tweaked it a little bit today, I know, but a break from this format for these two alt Sundays in a row, one of those few months in the year when that happens. And uh, for anyone not familiar, uh, alt Sundays are, it's open season on the shape of the gathering. The, the, the order in which we do things is formally up for grabs on an alt Sunday. Anything might happen. And uh, which has been lovely. And so these past two weeks, we've been watching and discussing this 2016 documentary, Accidental Courtesy Race in America, which is the story of Daryl Davis, African-American man. He spent a lot of his life pursuing an answer to the question, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? That's sort of the central question that that guides his life practice and, and the story of the documentary. And the doc is long enough. We've watched it over two Sunday mornings. We both occasions felt like we uh, wanted and needed more time for discussion than we had at the end of those. And so today we're going to explore a couple of related ideas, and that exploration is going to make up this talky bit. And then, because there are some things that work best in person, uh, we're going to end talking about it in a broadcast sense, and we're going to have some time in conversation. So I'll make some reference to the film in this part of our time together, and I'll try to give those enough context so even if you haven't had a chance to see it, those references will hopefully make sense. And in any case, I would encourage you to take the time to watch it. It's dated, um, and, and you can see that about it. But also, if you watch it right to the end, there's some, there's some references, some speculative references to what might happen culturally under a Trump presidency that are fascinating in their own right when you view them from our vantage point chronologically. And uh, so dated, but uh, just as relevant, I think, to the wider human consideration of why we might, this question of why we might express such strong feelings about someone that we don't even know. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? So I want to be explicit about some of the connections to all of that and why we're having this conversation in particular at the table in particular. Um, As a community, I think we occupy a little bit of an unusual space because as a collective, we exist to provide a place where the mandate is exploration of what we believe. Now, Perhaps that's true in any environment where curious people get together. That said, I think part of what makes the table unusual is that we use some forms that people might readily identify as religious. And uh, one of those is, this might seem terribly banal, but it's amazing how much weight it seems to still carry. We meet on Sunday morning. Right? That's not an unusual time in this part of the world for a religious gathering. We sometimes do the sorts of things that we did this morning. We, we sing together. Uh, Or if not together, then we offer the opportunity to sing together. We reference religious texts. We reference religious traditions in our idea exploration. We sometimes touch on various aspects, in particular of the Judeo-Christian tradition, since that's a tradition most of us have in common, at least in terms of what we grew up around or what's really informed some of our understandings about belief. We have that in common with lots of religious gatherings. 
What's a bit different is that we don't have any sort of we believe statement. There's no collective assumptions made about right belief. There's no predetermined best end point for the exploration of belief. That is, in I think pretty much any religious setting, quite exceptional. That's unusual. Sometimes it's tucked away, you know, the the boilerplate isn't necessarily broadcast or published, but it's almost always there. And I suppose we have our own, don't we? What would we find unacceptable? Well, we would find it unacceptable for somebody to say there's only one right way to believe, maybe. That's that's sort of our creed, I guess, isn't it? It's interesting. So we have to be careful not to play the same game, you know, by different rules or you know, that kind of a dilemma with that idea, I think. But it is a bit unusual and, and unique to us. Now, somebody that I know, uh, but who isn't here regularly because they live somewhere else, but they're aware of the community and they check in by podcast and we were talking last week and they said, well, it's just open-minded, that's all. I certainly hope that's true. I want that to be true about this community. My response in that conversation was that, and I've said this in this space before, I think that there should be something like the table pretty much on every corner. And I think that's true personally because, in my experience, there are so many people that are sifting and sorting what they believe these days, and many of those people have either experienced or fear they will experience something like rejection from friends, family, community in that process. And so on the strength of those feelings and maybe experiences, they, they believe that it's necessary to do that exploration alone or to keep it hidden. And I think that is understandable. I think it is very sad. And I also believe that in the main, not always, but more often than not, it's unnecessary. And I would like to think that the table is a demonstration of that, that whatever messages you've received about the hazards of exploring what you believe, I would, I would like to be personally, and I would hope that we could collectively be a voice that clearly says that there are places where that exploration is supported and shared and celebrated, and that this community is here to strive to be one of those sorts of places. So that's an explicit connection for me to the kind of discussion we've been having, why we would choose to spend the amount of time that we have watching a documentary that is, uh, that is deliberately not religious, but touches on many themes that have to do with belief, that we've been guided in these ideas about rest is resistance by Tricia Hersey's work, um, the, the book by that same title which she goes out of her way to say this is not a religious book but we recognize many things in that work and thinking about belief so that's kind of the intersection now as part of following that path as a community this documentary that we've been watching and that we've been talking about has as its central motif the fact that Daryl Davis this, this African American man who's the main figure in the narrative makes it his practice to befriend members of the Ku Klux Klan so that they can get to know one another in the hope that, if that happens, that the hate will be replaced by, if not friendship, then at least by a relational connection, a human-to-human connection. And along the way in the documentary, we hear from lots of folks from inside the Klan talking about things like white supremacy, talking about how the only way America can be saved as a nation is white rule, and also about how white rule is what it means to be Christian, And it's also what justifies the notion that those whose skin color is other than white are lesser humans. And so all of those themes showed up in conversations in that documentary. 
It was an interesting internal experience for me personally to be sitting in the room and somebody from upstairs from the coffee shop came down to use the washroom and walked past the door and stopped and commented in a way that was audible to the whole room while somebody on the screen was going on in clan rhetoric, right? Commented from the screen, oh, so that's what you're watching. And then just, you know, pulled out their phone and took a picture and moved on. And I wanted to follow them, you know, and say, could you come back and watch the whole documentary, please? Um, because this is, this is not a gathering of white people who are here to pump up their, uh, their white supremacist hatred uh, for the world. In fact, quite the opposite. And, and what came to mind shortly after that when I reflected on it was Octavia Butler's essay that we examined a few weeks ago talking about how it's easy to tell a lie by part, telling... Part, you can quote someone accurately and only quote part of it, and it's not true, you know, in these contexts. So this stuff, all of that stuff, that association, right? The, the, there's, there's associations that have to do with ideas about race that would go with an observation like that. And what did that observation mean? Well, I'm making certain assumptions about it based on fear. He may have been like, oh, I've seen that documentary. It's awesome. He didn't expand. He just said, oh, that's what you're watching. He took a picture and moved on, right? I made negative assumptions out of that, but that's all they are is assumptions. But they come from somewhere, right? They come from all those associations. They come from... Our, our environment, they come from all these places. All to say this, on both sides of that documentary, and it is very much a, a dialogue between sides, uh, the way that it's framed, there's not a lot in the messy middle in there, in my, my take on it. On both sides of that particular conversation are what I would just call beliefs. And we could define beliefs this way, and I, this is a definition I'll be working with in my own thinking about this. We could define beliefs as convictions about the way things are, or the way things should be. Those are our beliefs. And we could also, we could exchange the word convictions for feelings. Really couldn't we? Because that's how they tend to operate. The things we have strong feelings about in terms of how they should be or how they are. Those are our convictions. Those are our beliefs. And our beliefs form the basis for our actions. So if our actual, I'm going to say beliefs, the ones we don't readily negotiate about, are, let's say, hateful at one end of that particular continuum, our actions are likely to reflect that. If our beliefs are loving, our actions are likely to reflect that. If our beliefs are in transit, if they're kind of soft around the edges and we're conscious of that, the way we act will probably reflect some of that status of in change and so on, right? So if those are two poles, hateful and loving, and then most of us spend most of our life, I think, in the messy middle somewhere, don't we? But our beliefs tend to inform our actions, And our beliefs also inform our imagination. So the definition we've been working with for imagination for the last few weeks as we've touched on this is forming new ideas or images or concepts of external objects not present to the senses. So those are acts of imagination. When we do that, we're using our imagination. Our beliefs inform our imaginations. Our beliefs also often limit our imaginations, especially if we have beliefs about which we would say we feel sure, or perhaps even if we're very sure, we might use a word like certain, maybe less and less. In this context, I would say probably fewer and fewer of us would tend to use a word like certain about our beliefs, but it happens. So I think that tends to generally be the case about our beliefs and our imagination and the relationship between those things, and it's no less the case when we imagine or believe about what is right or wrong, which is how I'm going to use the term moral imagination. So we're going to come back to that in a bit. 
in the documentary, Daryl Davis talks about being someone who grew up in a number of different international settings. As part of his story, he describes his childhood school as being like a mini United Nations. Documentary included a photograph, and it was visibly a mixture of ethnicities in that room. Um, he says he just he grew up going to school with lots of different races, lots of different ethnicities, lots of different religions in the room. So that community, in his formative years, full of diversity, was his friend group. It was his normal. And when he imagines the place of ideas like race, that's his baseline. When it comes to friendship for Daryl Davis, race is irrelevant, or at least not a barrier. But his lived experience as he grew older and became aware of his ethnic or racial place in America as a black young black man, that came as quite a shock to him as he tells the story in the documentary that people would you know, throw things at him when he was in the Boy Scout parade because he was the one black kid in the troop. He was surprised by that because it's not how he grew up. It wasn't his baseline for how this works. The notion that somebody might hate somebody else because of the color of their skin, the name of their God, if they have one, where they're from, not the bottom line for him. The bottom line for him is relationship, it's friendship, and some bigger ideas about pulling together to make the world better for everybody in whatever your national context is. Beliefs like that, of course, are not unique to Daryl Davis. I don't know if you've, uh, you, you've probably heard of a band called July Talk. They were through here on tour a few months ago. I'm not, a, I'm not an avid fan, but there are people in the house that are, and they are a very striking uh, act. I won't get into it. But what I want to do is I want to read you the contents of the signs that this band puts up on every door entering every venue that they play in. So if you go to a July Talk show... You cannot get into the show without getting past this. Read it or not, but it's going to be in your face. It says this. Love lives here. Um, the graphic is like, that's, that's all caps, right? That's a big header on these posters. Love lives here. And it goes on to say this. It's important to us that our shows are safe for everyone. Regardless of the color of your beautiful skin, what you believe in, where you come from, how you got here, who, how you love how you choose to identify yourself, and how your exquisite body moves through space. Next header, we welcome you. Please watch out for each other. Be responsible, communicate, make friends, and enjoy the show. We're so glad you're here with us tonight. Thank you for coming. With admiration, love, and respect, July Talk. And then they just blow the roof off the place. This is a, this is a serious rock and roll band. It's, it's not... Uh, it's not a singer-songwriter show. There are strong feelings coming off that stage. There's lots of opportunity to understand many of the themes in their music as combative. They're exploring our lived experience, but their vantage point is this. Now, there's no preface on those signs that says, we believe. But the signs are about beliefs. Those signs are full-flight moral imagination exercises. If there was a preface, it might say something like, we believe. It could just as well say something like, when we imagine a good world, when we imagine how things should or could be, it is a place where all are made welcome. This is what we imagine. 
Now, this is an opinion. This is not a known fact, at least from my perspective, but I would be willing to bet that things don't always go down that way at a July talk show. They don't always go the way that they hope they will. And yet, despite that, despite their best efforts in that direction, even when it doesn't go that way, they keep putting up the signs. They keep exercising their moral imagination about these things. They're doing what they can to keep it as alive, as healthy, as present as they're able. Now, July Talk is a rock and roll band. Daryl Davis is a musician, a public speaker, a lecturer. Neither one of them is exercising their moral imagination in the context of religious practice, at least not in any particular public or collective way that identifies with something religious. Religions, which could reasonably be understood to be contexts in which statements about beliefs are pretty standard fare, one of the reasons why the fact that the table doesn't have one might be experienced as extraordinary, right? They're normal. You would think that in that kind of a context where statements about that say we believe are, are de rigueur, that they might be places where things like moral imagination would be robust, would be thriving, would be in good health. And yet, as settings like the documentary make clear, religion can be a place where the moral religion imagination is stunted or turned toward the fostering of horrible values just as readily as it might be turned toward the fostering of beautiful ones. Robin Wright, I, I confess to not having read the whole book, but I'm working on it. It's massive. Uh, very thoughtful volume entitled The Evolution of God. And in one of the appendices of that book, he speaks to this in a short written interview. And I want to read you just one of the question and answer exchanges from that interview. The interviewer asks this. He says, you write often, he asks right this question, he says, you write often about the failure of the moral imagination, especially as it applies to the three monotheistic religions. What, in your mind, would it take to inspire these communities of religious people to be more imaginative? And this is, this is Wright's reply. By moral imagination, I mean, and if, if you don't hear anything else from this gathering or this podcast, take this away with you, please. By moral imagination, I mean the capacity to put yourself in the shoes of other people, especially people in circumstances very different from your own. That's moral imagination at work. You can't do that energetically without exercising your moral imagination, without a reconsideration of the world as it ought to be or is. You've got to do that to, to walk in somebody else's shoes in your imagination, even a bit. He goes on to say this, and I think the fate of the world depends on our ability to expand our moral imaginations. As for what forces would aid this process right now, I think the main thing is for people in the different faith communities to see, A, that people in other communities are fundamentally like themselves, driven by the same basic set of human needs and aspirations, and B, that people in the world's various communities are increasingly in the same boat. The world is becoming a pretty small place, and our fortunes are increasingly intertwined. A friend of mine had posted something recently that included a couple of images from Gaza, largely of the, the material devastation of that space. And... As I was driving here this morning and I was thinking about some of these ideas and, and about the shrinking nature of the world and driving along in the comfort of a reliable vehicle on a maintained road headed for the freedom of this 
in a space where unless somebody comes by and takes a picture and I wonder where it's going to get posted, I don't even think about things like safety. And thinking about the stories I've heard from people who've had experiences like the ones in Gaza, the people that that Kareen's work has her in contact with, the new to Canada community, you know, and our, our experience as a family over the years with that community. And how many of those stories were our our dentistry business was going fine and we loved our home and our yard and our neighbors and our kids and going to work and celebrating the things we celebrated and then one day there was a war and now we're here with the stuff we could fit in our backpack that day I'm not trying to sow the seeds of fear I'm trying to sow the seeds of moral imagination as Wright speaks about it here putting myself in somebody else's shoes and for me this morning that was the exercise of driving down that street with those buildings on either side thinking about the picture I saw this morning of Gaza where those buildings were decimated by a conflict and the realization that this street I was on is one rocket attack away from being in the same condition. Like, it's not that thick a wall between this and that. Is that something to live in fear of? I don't think so. I don't think that's helpful. Is that something to be blithe about? No, I don't think that's helpful either. I think in between those, perhaps, lives something like what I'm trying to describe when I talk about the exercise of the moral imagination the willingness to consider both the importance and the fragility of those bonds with those whose life and experience and culture and view of how things could or should be might be different than mine, you know? I was going to put it into a bumper sticker. I might say something like, either we pull together or we fall apart, you know? What keeps us from doing that? What, what keeps us from pulling together? Or what can at least tilt us away from it rather than toward it? I think that's the topic for many other days. There's lots there to explore. But there's also lots to explore on the matter of how if religion is something we make, how can we make whatever we make as collectives, whether we name that as a religious thing or not, how can we make that in ways that would either help or hinder that process of exercising our moral imaginations of Encouraging and supporting one another in the stepping into someone else's experience in our imagination as much as we're able to do so. There's so much to explore there. I don't think we're going to run out of prompts for our exploration of what we believe anytime soon. For now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave it there because I want us to take some time together to kick these things around in conversation. Um, Thank you for listening. Thank you for thinking. Thank you for, as we get into this, for sharing your thoughts, whether you do that now in person or whether you do that online or by being in touch in some way. I think if we're going to pull together, we need to not just listen to one another, but we need to practice the sorts of things that teach us how to be open to and actively engaging with perspectives that are different from our own, even if sometimes that makes us feel uncomfortable. And it almost always will. I think that's a given. Anyway, this is a good place to practice, and I look forward to practicing with all of you. So, peace and... uh, the end. <laughs>